0: The and Allison podcast episode is brought to you by Kraken Sports, manufacturing high-quality scuba diving photo and video equipment, including my personal favorite, their Universal Smart Housing. This durable aluminum dive housing allows you to use your smartphone to take photos and videos while exploring the underwater world. With a vacuum sealing system, a built-in dive computer, and a variety of lens and light options, it's the perfect product for the ocean adventurer on the go. Visit krakensports.ca to learn more. And now to this month's episode of Ocean Allison Podcast. This episode's Ocean Advocate is Dr. Andrea Marshall. Andrea, also known as the Queen of Mantas, is the co-founder of Marine Megafauna Foundation as well as Ray of Hope Expeditions, and she has dedicated her life to studying and conserving manta rays. Hi, Andrea. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you? I'm great. I'm very excited to have you on Ocean Allison Podcast and to highlight all the amazing work that you're doing and have done in the past because it is seriously incredible, like researching you online. I almost don't even know where to begin because you've had so many incredible accomplishments throughout your career thus far. But I know that listeners are going to be super excited to hear about it and hopefully be inspired to you know get involved take action and do something good for the ocean so listeners to give you guys a little bit of background on how andrea is joining me today um we have actually never met in person but uh i just followed andrea online for quite a while now just you know admiring her work with manta rays and just always excited when there's new developments and new you know parts of her research or new um, conservation efforts that she's achieved comes out. So I've been wanting to have her on the show for a while, and then also um, we'll get into this a little bit more later. But there's uh, someone here actually in Florida, where I currently am and where I grew up, as probably most of you listeners know by now, um, studying manta rays as well in collaboration with Andrea. And I actually got to go out on the boat with her today. So we'll talk about that a little bit more throughout the episode. But basically, I have never met Andrea, but have, you know, some connections through the Florida project uh, with her. And I'm super excited to hear from her herself. So hopefully listeners, you guys are going to be interested and inspired as well. So Andrea, I want to start out by asking you, you know, just about your connection to the ocean from, you know, very, very fundamental and preliminary standpoint, like what drew you to it? And caused you to get into into everything that you've done. But what was that kind of initial reasoning into why you you got so into and, you know, we could probably say obsessed, you know, but I could probably say that for myself, too, uh, with the ocean?
1: Oh, geez. Well, it's a that's a interesting question. I'm not even sure if I have the an answer for it. My connection with the ocean is just absolute. I don't I, there was never a time that I could remember in my whole life where I haven't just been in love um, with the ocean um, you know if you ask my mom she would say that you know as early as five years old I was just as you mentioned obsessed um, with the ocean I just couldn't get enough I I just wanted more and more I was really insatiable and she didn't really know where it came from because you know my parents are computer programmers we lived in California but inland uh, my mom can hardly swim so it's not like I was pushed into this field um, you know for, because my parents were you know, uh, sailors or, you know, ocean lovers or anything like that. But I I just was really obsessed from a young age. And she assumes that I must have seen something maybe on television, maybe Jacques Cousteau, maybe a book, who knows. Um, but, you know, I just I never wavered in my love for the ocean. I always wanted to study sharks. I always, you know, wanted to be um, kind of a conservationist. She remembers from a really early age me saying that I wanted to help the animals. So not just that I wanted to study them, but that I really wanted to help them. Um, and she just thought that was really Sweet and genuine, and, and definitely tried to support that love. You know, with the sharks, she tried to change my mind gently, um, but you know because because I was showing such a affection for the ocean, she really wanted to to figure out how to help me achieve my dreams. So she always, even though she couldn't really swim well or you know she wasn't a diver, she always made sure that I was connected to the ocean through other different types of friends. Or she got me certified when I was young and sent me to different types of sea camps um, when I was young. So there was always just connection to the ocean throughout my whole life growing up
0: that's amazing that your parents were so supportive and fostered that love even though maybe it wasn't a love that they necessarily had so
1: definitely and it and that was i think for me um that was such a a, a pivotal role you know to have people support my dreams and my passion, even though they were completely unfamiliar with it themselves. Um, and that made all the difference. And and now as a as a parent to a, a young two year old, I, I don't exactly know where she's going to go in her life. But I do know that whatever it is that she wants to do, I'm definitely going to support it because that was so valuable for me in my own life.
0: Definitely. That's amazing. So, um, you know, with that support and love and obviously just your super focused obsession and passion for the ocean and studying it and protecting it you were actually I I think this is right the first person ever to study manta rays as your PhD is that right
1: um yeah it's true I mean I didn't even really think of it about it like that at the time you know statistics like this come out like after the fact where you know have like journalists be like oh wow you know do you know you're the first person that's ever completed a PhD on mantas and I'm like oh you know, because you don't you don't do it for that purpose. You know, yeah. I was always shark obsessed. You know, and my my obsession with sharks led me to Africa. I kind of wanted to study great white sharks. But while I was hanging out in South Africa, I was I was working for the IUCN, who's the international conservation body who assesses all of the different animals for the public, you know, and for conservation. List them as threatened, yeah, list or them or as or... endangered or threatened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they they get expert panels together from around the world, and and they had given me about ten animals to review. You know, know, that year and um, one of them happened to be mantas. And I mean, who doesn't love mantas? I've been diving since I was about 11 years old and um, have had such incredible encounters with them and love them dearly, but never had thought about studying them until the moment where I was doing the reviews on them. And there was no information. Um, I I was going through all the books. I was trying to find any type of information to put in this assessment. And I was coming up with nothing, really. I mean, just really little. And I ultimately had to list them as data deficient. And my heart, I was so sad that night. I remember going home thinking geez, manta rays are just the most incredible animals, you know, and they're just big and iconic and interesting and everyone loves them. How come nobody's studying them? You know, and I knew there was threats to these animals. But unfortunately, without any of the information that we needed, we couldn't effectively uh, list them as anything. So they they were just listed as data deficient, which really doesn't help their conservation movement globally. And, and I really was frustrated by that. And that's what, provoked me to go into researching mantas was just the fact that no one else was doing it. And I thought, you know what, this animal deserves to be studied, and we need to learn more about it so that we can figure out how to protect it. And yeah, so I kind of, from that moment, I put all of my effort into studying these animals. And um, even though that was a very selfless move, I felt at the time, about six months in, I was like, sharks? (laughs) Mantas are way cooler than sharks. (laughs) And so it actually turned out to my benefit, because they're just the most extraordinary animals. And I feel so privileged to be able to work on them every day
0: in terms of when you started to study them you were studying them in Africa off the coast of Mozambique is that right that's correct okay and I know that you have lots of different research projects involving manta rays and you know we'll get into the different species of manta rays in a little bit because I know you had a role in that as well but in terms of kind of the general way in which you have and are studying Manta Ray populations, like can you kind of walk myself and listeners through the basics, you know, like the photo ID and maybe different tags that you've used? Kind of what are the basics of studying them?
1: Sure. Well, you know, when you start studying them from ground zero, like it's um, a bit of a a bit of a learning curve. Um, And, you know, one of the most important things when you're tackling the study of any kind of animal or any population of any type of animal is really just to understand, like, the basic sort of fundamental questions, you know. What does this population look like? What is it comprised of? Is this an adult and a juvenile population? Is this just an adult or just a juvenile population? How many individuals are here in this population? Um, So that over time you can look at trends, you know, is this a stable population? Is it declining? Is it increasing? And looking at things like, why are they here you know, is, is this a critical habitat for the animals? Is, is this represent their entire home range or do they wander to other places? So these types of basic sort of fundamental questions are always where you start. It's kind of like your starting point. Um, and with manta rays, it's kind of best achieved using a low cost methodology like photo ID because we're able to collect a lot of information on these animals quickly. Um, and luckily for us, manta rays have these unique spot patterns on, on their bellies, on their undersides, which mean that every single individual can be identified as a separate individual. Um, So a lot of sharks look alike or a lot of fish look alike but luckily mantas have this belly print you know it's just like a fingerprint but it's a belly print which you know you can really easily tell them apart from other individuals and so we were able to develop things like algorithms that were developed almost off the back of things like the FBI fingerprint database that allow us to upload photos of mantas and it screens it against pretty much any manta in the world and then it tells us whether or not that manta has been seen previously or it's a new individual. So we're easily, um, not easily, this took me about seven years to develop, but now, now it's really easy for us to develop really comprehensive catalogs, not just my own research teams, but other research teams around the world are able to use the same types of methodologies to study mantas all over the globe. And by slowly building these catalogs, we can answer many of the questions I just said. So what does the population look like? You know, is it is it comprised of, of adult individuals or juveniles? How many individuals? individuals are here. And then over time, you can, you know, look at those catalogs and determine whether or not the populations are increasing or decreasing. And that's the basis for which you launch everything else. You know, so down later down the track, you know, 10 years after we started studying them in this way, we started you know, advancing our studies. So we started taking tissue sample and looking, tissue samples and looking at things um, like the genetics of populations, relatedness of individuals. We started looking at things like their feeding ecology, which can be determined by taking tissue from the animal, which is kind of weird, but uh, you are what you eat. So if you take a bit of your body and you're able to analyze it with things like biochemical analyses, you are able to determine what an animal eats. So we were able to study how they eat and what they eat from taking these tissue samples. Uh, We were able to start putting different types of tags on them from acoustic tags and uh, satellite tags and those enable us to look closer at at their daily movements how they're utilizing habitats and then most importantly if they're making long-range movements um, and if so what their migrations look like so that we can figure out how to better protect them when they leave the areas that we know you know it's like for instance in Mozambique we have a population that we're tracking and And it's nice to kind of dream about getting comprehensive protection for them along that coast. But if they're actually leaving to go to South Africa and Madagascar or Tanzania quite regularly, then the conservation efforts that we're doing in Mozambique are just not enough. So those types of uh, studies then become really important so that we can really ascertain the bigger picture of what's going on in these animals' lives.
0: To kind of pick apart a a bit of what you were just, you know, your breakdown of the research a bit, because I want to touch on a few things. So in terms of the photo IDing, you know, you said each manta has its own unique pattern on its underside um, and you can identify it that way. So you've actually developed um, Manta Matcher, right? Um, (laughs) So, and that's like for anyone to be able to go on to Manta Matcher and they can upload a photo and see if, you know, that manta has been identified. Is that right?
1: It is. And it it sounds kind of basic for me. Manta Matcher is, is quite frankly, my greatest achievement. It's my legacy. And I'm really, Excited and proud about it because it, it really represents where I think science is going, which is open source public involvement databases. You know, I'm really a strong proponent of citizen science. I was there, you know, I was that 12 year old 15 year old diver who was so passionate about the ocean and wanting to help but not knowing how and not, not knowing how I could be of service to conservationists or to you know scientists. And that feeling never goes away. It's not just because you're 15 that you have that feeling. It's, you know, divers are really passionate about the ocean and they want to help. You know, and, and the flip side is, is that researchers, a lot of them feel very, very isolated. So they're out somewhere and they're trying to learn as much as they can about these animals but are getting frustrated because they only have a, a research team of 5 or 10 or, you know, mm-hmm. even if you're big and you have a research team of 15, you think you can count all the manta rays in the world, with a fi- you know, <laughs> with a team of 15? It's impossible. So how are we supposed to be able to collect data quick enough to be able to save these animals well the answer is you know sitting right in front of us which is that we have these these armies of divers around the world that if we can harness the goodwill of these people and
0: and the cameras that they have
1: and the cameras that they have, I mean, they're distributed all over the world. You can instantaneously start collecting really great data. And the great thing about mantas and, and whale sharks and other things where you can collect data through photographs is photographs don't lie. So you don't have to worry about the data being biased in any way. You know, the researchers can have looks at the photos later. And even if people didn't, um, you know, uh, sex the animal correctly or, you know, whatever it is, you can always change data later because you have that one snapshot and that photo is, is really reliable. So, you know, by developing um, sites like Manta Matcher, which is actually part of the wild books online, which are kind of like Facebooks for animals. So there's a NGO in the States called Wild Me who put out these wild books and they have them for whales and they have them for whale sharks and mantas. Pretty much anyone can go out diving. If you see a whale shark or a manta, for instance, and you're able to capture a photo, you can go online. It takes about two minutes, you know, to upload your photo with just the data of like, you know, it was on this day, maybe about this time and this location, you upload the photo and then that photo gets scanned against every single photo of whale sharks or manta rays on the planet and comes back and and lets you know whether or not you've recited an animal and if so it gives you all the information about where that animal's been previously and if it's a new individual then you're able to upload a very new record and you can even adopt it if you want and then you know regardless of whether it was a reciting or a new individual every single time that manta or whale shark is ever seen again you'll get notification of that and you'll see where the animal that you saw has gone now so it really connects people to that experience of being a citizen scientist and really just understanding where the data goes you get updated on on how these data are used over time so that you feel really a part of the solution which is ultimately what we want everyone to feel like they're this is their planet these are their animals and they can be a part of saving them.
0: That's amazing. So, definitely, listeners, uh, after you listen to this podcast episode, I highly recommend checking out Manta Matcher. Okay. So, and then another element of breaking down the basics of how you do the Manta research you know, you talked about taking tissue samples for genetic testing. And I know this was a really, really big step in your career as a scientist, as a Manta Ray researcher, is that you were able to actually identify a new separate species of manta ray that no one had ever identified before. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and what that was like for you?
1: Well, sure. I mean, it was also a very innocent kind of discovery. Um, I, I realized that perhaps now in my career, and certainly other people doing research sometimes have the objective of going out to discover something specific, you know, like I'm going on this expedition to climb Everest, you know, without ropes <laughs> or something. But sometimes, you know, discoveries happen just organically, you know, just because you're out there in the field doing stuff. And that was very much the case with mantas. I'm not a taxonomist. I'm not trained in the in the art of taxonomy. And it is quite a convoluted and complex type of science. But what I did know is I was seeing different types of mantas. So I, I had started a PhD off the coast of Mozambique. I was studying a population of mantras there. And no one else was around. It was just me and my little bush camp, you know, and didn't have anyone really to talk to. But Every time I went diving every day, what I was noting is that I would see mantas that would fall either into one category or another. You know, they were all the same sizes. They were all doing the same thing, but they just looked wildly different. You know that was the first inclination that there was something going on. And as I as I noted these two different types of mantas, I noted that they actually behaviorally were really really different. All of these little things started adding up. And I thought to myself, I, I wonder if these are two different types of mantas. And I remember taking that information back to my university and and almost just getting like laughed out of the office. and my supervisor and everyone else there was like, "Are you kidding me? You know, no, you know, there's one species of whale shark. there's one species of manta found globally. You know, you didn't just stumble across a new species as a 23-year-old randomly in Africa. I mean, come on. Um, And I was like, well, I can only report what I'm seeing. I mean, we're supposed to be doing science, right? You know, and I was, I'm bringing you data and this is what the data say to me. You know, I I really had a hunch that I was right. and, And even though, a lot of people tried to persuade me that I I was not seeing what I was seeing. I really was adamant that there was something going on. And so I I followed it up for a couple of years. um, And that's where the genetics came in is I had collected a lot of uh, really overwhelming, I think, evidence about differences in terms of their skin. And one of them had a little spine and one of them didn't. And, you know, one of them got much bigger than the other. There was a lot of uh, sort of physical differences and behavioral differences. But what I really wanted is I wanted over overwhelming evidence to be able to, to demonstrate to people that that they were you know beyond a shadow of a doubt genetically different. So I started taking tissue samples from the mantas, which is something I had never, done previously and had to learn how to do um, but found that they were actually quite receptive you know to it Mantas are really curious and very bold and, and almost trusting animals and I was able to get little bits of tissue out of them with no real issue um, and I started taking tissue from around the world and I partnered with a, a geneticist at my university and you know we were able to, to demonstrate genetically as well that they were different so we put out these two different papers one like a taxonomic paper and one a genetic paper to demonstrate that yeah in fact the world actually has two different species of mantas Um, and I spent probably the next five or six years traveling around the world learning about the second species figuring out where it lives and you know a little bit more about this giant manta which is just such an amazing creature.
0: That's amazing and so um, in terms of the tags that you mentioned you know you sometimes use satellite tags or acoustic tags to track where these manta rays are going you know both species that you you know that you now study after realizing that they were two species um what have the tags really shown you like bottom line what were the surprising results I guess to you in terms of being able to track where they were going and obviously I know there's different species going different places but kind of a more general what's the results of that
1: Oh, that's really easy because I didn't even have to wait long for any type of surprises or any type of results um, on that, you know, the very first satellite tags that I put on. And, and, you know, this was almost like the shiny new hammer, you know, back in the day when we were able to take these tags underwater, people have been using radio collars and things like that on animals. Uh, terrestrially for a long time but when this technology became available to put on marine species everybody wanted to you know put it on their animal to kind of figure out where their animals are going it's a really cool uh, new tool and I figured well you know I'm out here studying these animals I might as well use this tool and I, I don't really know what it's gonna find but if you if I'd been giving a lecture on mantas before I put the tags on I would have told you that these are animals that we encounter in surface water shallow waters uh, they tend to live inshore. Um, you know, they seem to kind of hang out in similar areas because we were reciting individuals quite, quite often. So that, that would have been my impression from studying them for several years off the coast of Mozambique. And then I put a few of these tags on uh, and I waited for, for six months. And the day the tag popped off, I assumed that the tags had malfunctioned because the data that was coming back was so outrageous that no one believed me. Um, And it was only when we then put a couple of other tags on did we realize that it was real. But those very first tags indicated that the mantis were making really swift migrations, as in they were you know, they might be tooling around Mozambique for a while, but then they would make beeline kind of migrations for South Africa, making international like a migration to a different country, sometimes traveling up to like 1,100 kilometers within, you know, a week or something like that. And then during the course of their travels, or, or when they got to, you know, an area of interest for them, they were making dives of up to 1400 meters from the surface, which on the day made them the deepest diving fish on the planet, you know, and subsequently, they the, that record's been broken slightly by a couple of other animals, but at the time it was like we went from thinking manatees lingered in certain areas and were at the surface most of the time and were quite resident to understanding that these are, you know, wide ranging animals that are capable of long distance movements, international movements, even movement movements into, um, unprotected offshore areas and are capable of outrageous dives, you know? And so it was like, suddenly it was like, Oh my gosh, we actually don't know anything about these animals. And it changed my entire perspective. And for people who sometimes are, um, reluctant to see people tag animals. I 100% agree that sometimes it seems difficult to, you know, watch people put a camera on the back of a, a turtle or, you know, put a tag on an animal. It, it doesn't seem fair sometimes. And, and perhaps some animals don't respond as well, but mantis thankfully respond really well to tagging. But I have to say that tagging a very small subset of any population can give you really important information that you, I mean, I had been studying that population for years every day and I would never have picked up on this information if I hadn't done the tagging so it's like really important kind of data that can be got from technology these days and and it's really important to remember that
0: it's it's amazing how you know you were studying them for several years and then within a very short amount of time it just you felt like wow I don't know anything <laughs> never mind yep. It's amazing how uh, there's still so much to learn about the ocean, the animals that live in it, and just everything, you know, really about our planet. So I know that because of all your research and, you know, you finding these groundbreaking results about manta rays, um, you were named a Nat Geo Emerging Explorer in 2013. What was that experience like for you to be recognized by Nat Geo?
1: Yeah, like, again, I I mean, maybe I think I do what I do for the love of what I do. And I don't really have any expectations. I don't, I never sought out to, you know, find new species or do the things that I do. And I certainly never expected to be recognized by someone like Nat Geo, like, living out in a hut in the middle of nowhere in Mozambique, you know, you just, you don't even think that Natu even knows who you are. And kudos to them as a society for really getting out there in the field and identifying.
0: The explorers.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Explorers of the planet and all these amazing talents because they really are doing a great job. But, you know, I I remember um, when I got the email, I just looked at my husband and I I almost pressed delete because I just assumed it was spam. Oh, we decided, you know, we want you to be a Natu explorer. And uh, what? Yeah, delete. You know, and they had to follow ac- up with an actual phone call before I really actually believed it. And it and it's a tremendous honor. Um, I think you know I've been uh, reading National Geographic magazine since I was a little girl, and to feel like a part of that society and to feel like you've made your mark enough to to warrant the society's attention at all um, is a great honor. But again, I think it's uh, the most important thing is to just get back into the field and do what you're doing.
0: You know, you've said a couple times like, you know, you don't do this for the recognition and I, I totally respect and I think that's really, you know, like you said, it's about getting out there and doing what you want to do and doing what, you know, you feel is good to do. Um, you know, what what do you think really does motivate you to to study these animals? You know, what's really kind of that the core reason that continues to motivate you and continues to inspire you to, to do what you do?
1: Well, it's interesting you ask that because it's actually changed through my career. I would say the f- the first thing was that really hooked me and that and that drives me a lot is just really the unknown. Um, I think I'm an explorer at heart, you know, which is why I don't mind being identified as an explorer because that's how I feel. You know, I love to go into new places and you know, find new things. If I am studying an animal, I'm always constantly intrigued by what I don't know, what I haven't been able to learn, trying to figure out how I can ask from a different angle to get that answer. I've always been just driven by just that unknown, you know, just asking questions constantly. And, and I think if you're a scientist, that it's probably what drives a lot of us. Mm -hmm. But probably midway through my career, I really changed profoundly in that I, I saw what was happening not just to these animals, but just the ocean in general, um, living out there in the field and, and, and many of the, I mean, most of the places that we work, um, my organization is mandated to work in the developing world. And so most of the areas that we're working in are subject to a lot of threats and anthropogenic pressure. and I am just seeing firsthand you know what is really going on out there. and it's important for me to come back from these places and bear witness to everyone who doesn't have the opportunity to visit these locations to, to know just how bad it is and to, to know just how little time we have left to change it.
0: In terms of manta rays in particular, what what are you seeing in terms of these anthropogenic changes that you want to you know share with listeners?
1: Well, like for me, it was that, you know, when I started studying these animals, we kind of and not just me, but we all started to realize that there was these these growing fisheries for them in Asia, uh, where they were being killed by the thousands to feed a, a growing trade in China is similar to many other wildlife trades like rhino horn and elephant tusk and shark fin and, you know, you name it, bear gallbladder juice, you know, there's all kinds of different tonics over there. And they had turned mantas into a tonic uh, that they were selling on the market there for a very high price. And so we started seeing these fisheries going up all over the world for mantas, targeting these animals. And then in response to that, collapses in the manta populations. And so, you know, for me, it became like uh, a race against time. You know, instead of asking questions For the love of science, like, ooh, I wonder how far mantis can see. You know, that should be I want to figure that out. You know, now it was like, how the hell do I save these animals? You know, they're at extraordinary risk globally. What can we do? What steps do we need to take in order to save populations and then save the species globally? Those questions became the driving um, sort of force behind all of the, the work that we do. And and I really feel like at that moment I changed from just being A biologist to being a conservation biologist
0: so kind of amongst all of that happening you co-founded marine megafauna foundation like i mentioned in the intro Um, you co-founded that with simon pierce um, who studies mostly whale sharks you know what is marine megafauna foundation all about well, we're really, I mean, it's quite simple, you know, we're trying to save
1: our ocean giants from extinction, you know, and the the reason that we study these animals is not because they're big and iconic. It's because most of these animals, you know, they have small population sizes, they're affected a lot by humans, um, so that you have like rapid population changes. And uh, unfortunately, in many, in, in most cases for these animals, they can't be bred back, you know, so for things like whale sharks or manta rays, or you know, dugongs or things like that, that we work on, you can't bring them back. You know, once they're gone, they're gone. And, you know, there are certain species that you might be able to breed in captivity and release later and kind of, you know, help nurse populations back. But some of these larger sort of wide ranging um, species, you cannot. So I feel a, a tremendous responsibility to try and figure out how to, protect some of these animals, protect this incredible subset of, of biodiversity out there, um, you know, these these ocean giants. And so we're mandated to work in uh, the developing world, you know, in areas that sometimes, you know, have other priorities and haven't really considered marine conservation or the conservation status of some of these animals. And we work really closely with local communities and government to try and come up with uh, solutions, but always driven by science. So it's very, very much, we believe in science-based strategies to the protection of these animals. And wherever we are, that might look different. But our mandate is to save these animals and save their important habitats.
0: Listeners, like I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, I was able to go out with Jessica Pate, who runs the Florida manta project you know under the marine megafauna foundation umbrella and um, I was able to go out on a boat with Jessica off the coast of Florida and we saw four manta rays today Um, and to note these are juvenile manta rays so they're only about six to eight feet wingspan whereas Andrea how large are the manta rays that you're typically studying if they're adults?
1: Well, I mean, it does range. I mean, the largest um, that I've really have ever seen are about kind of 21 22 feet wingspans they may get up to maybe 25 but you know they're rare to see them at that size but that is as large as they get they do get really large
0: yeah really really large so these were little baby ones that i was seeing today but um really quick listeners i just want to play a clip for you from out on the boat today with jessica pate who's doing the florida manta project just sharing a little bit about our experience on the boat today and um, you know why she's doing what she's doing, which definitely very much so aligns with Andrea's mission and the whole mission of Marine Megafauna Foundation. So here you go.
2: We're right off the coast of Jupiter Island in Florida, and we just got out of the water with a manta ray. It was a juvenile female manta ray, and we get in the water with them to identify um, them by the individual spot patterns on their bellies. And based on this spot pattern, uh, I believe it's a new female to our database, but I'll have to get back and double check on the computer.
0: Yeah, and when you jumped in, you know, what was the behavior of the manta ray? Right?
2: Uh, the manta is actually very tolerant of our behavior. She kind of looked at me and allowed me to dive underneath and get a photo of her. Um, but she did not seem too bothered by us being in the water with her yeah
0: and then you yelled at me get in right <laughs>
2: yeah not all of the manta rays are as relaxed as that so i wanted to make sure you got in really quickly so i was like allison jump now
0: <laughs> yeah and i got in as fast as i could and it was super cool it's really cool how they look at you is that something that like you usually experience they turn around they look they make eye contact
2: yeah, yeah. They're definitely very curious animals and they definitely will sometimes either kind of roll an eyeball to look at you or a lot of times, not a lot, but sometimes we'll see them actually flip upside down and swim upside down underneath you to get a better view of the strange
0: creature that's in the water with them. And so what's the biggest question that you're looking to answer in studying these Florida manta rays?
2: So the The biggest thing we're trying to determine right now is we're trying to determine the parameters or see if this is actually a nursery ground here. We have lots of evidence that it is based on the fact that we're only seeing juvenile manta rays, or at least the males. Those are the ones that you can actually tell are juveniles. Um, They're all relatively small. We see them frequently over and over, which are all characteristics of a nursery ground. So that means that it's a critical habitat. It's very important for their development. So it means it's a really important area to protect. So if we can figure out the boundaries of this nursery ground, how it's being used, why they're using it, um, it can help us better protect these manta rays.
0: Yeah. So thank you, Andrea, so much for, you know, hooking me up with Jessica and enabling me to have this experience with these manta rays off the coast of Florida. I'm so glad you got
1: to go out, especially as a Florida sort of, you know, local. It's really nice for you to know it's in your own backyard. Jessica's fabulous. She's doing a great job at sort of developing a what's going to be one of the most important studies, especially on on, on these mantas um, in this part of the world. And I am really excited to, to learn more about what she's going to find. I was out there last weekend and we had some really great manta action too and it's just so great to see these little ones although I'm sure you had the same impression that I did which is these poor mantas are just surrounded by so many threats you know any way you look there's sewage spilling out here and there's jet skis driving over their heads and there's towering apartments to you know one side and Mm -hmm. huge cruise ships to another so it can be a very daunting place for for a baby manta to grow up you know
0: Definitely. But at the same time, like you see them in the water and they're just so graceful and peaceful and amazing. Yeah. And so now with Marine Megafauna Foundation, you know, manta rays and beyond, you have all these different projects going on all over the world studying different populations of mantas and beyond. Like I said, you've been able to take that science from all these research projects and achieve a lot of really amazing accomplishments in the world of conservation and I want to talk about specifically with manta rays I know that you were able to get them listed on CITES which for listeners if you don't know what CITES is it's the convention on international trade of endangered species so Andrea can you just talk a little bit about you know getting them listed what that means and also to touch on a little the listing of manta rays now with the IUCN, which I know you mentioned in the very beginning, was kind of a big reason why you got started in all of this to begin with, because they were data deficient. So, what's their status now?
1: Yeah, well, as I said um, just now, I think midway through my career, I started to see the like the impending doom, you know, for mantas. I really I saw quite clearly the path that they were on, and it was not a good one. Um, And so I, I, I threw all my weight and focus on my entire department's efforts really were geared towards asking and answering the questions that would allow us to provide them with the greatest amount of protection. And I have to also say that, you know, at the same time, others were identifying this too. And other groups were also working very, very hard to kind of spearhead protections for mantas, you know, organizations like Wild Aid, organizations like the Manta Trust as well. And I think a lot of us just really wanted to figure out how to get them listed on these big international conventions, which is kind of the best way globally to protect species. I mean, it's not comprehensive by any means, but it certainly is the best that we currently have available. And so we had to do a lot of quick science, a lot of rapid assessments and stuff to um, be able to come up with enough information to persuade the delegates at CMS and CITES and stuff to put them on these international treaties. But we were able to do that. And that was such a huge victory, um, I think, for romantic conservation globally because it affords them a lot more protection that they would have normally and a spin off from that is that many countries um, almost immediately after the the CMS which is the Convention for Migratory Species Act and this and the CITES convention when mantas were awarded protection under both of those treaties a lot of singular countries decided to protect them in their waters period you know like Indonesia uh, is now an entire manta sanctuary like there is no uh, legal fishing for mantas in their waters many many other countries chose to step up to the plate and protect mantas off the back of those international treaties being signed. And so I think it just, what it forecasts is like a brighter future for mantas. And I I feel that, you know, those fisheries for them that had started up and this trend for, you know, killing them for Chinese tonics is starting to be curbed. Is it gone? No. Are they, you know, their pressures still for mantas around the world? Absolutely. And especially uh, for mobulas or devil rays, which are kind of like smaller mantas. Um, there definitely are threats out there but I think being able to have these animals at least recognized as being threatened species and I was able to with collaborators over the years get mantas to be listed now as vulnerable to extinction which even though that's a sad and scary listing you know um, because it suggests that if current cr- trends continue that we'll lose manta rays in the next kind of 75 years to 100 years at least we know where we're at now at least they, they've been identified as a vulnerable species and now we can use that listing to help tackle more aggressive conservation efforts for them. So we're in a much better place. What I tell people at the end of every talk that I give on mantas is 15 years ago, we knew nothing about these animals and they were in a lot of trouble. And through a lot of passionate hard work and science um, from teams all over the world, in a really short time period, you know, really only about a decade or so, we've really turned it around. It's not that we're done by any means, But we really have come a long way to understanding more about them and to, you know, getting more comprehensive protections for them. And many of their key critical habitats around the world are being protected. So I have a very optimistic view about the survival of the species, at least. Maybe certain populations are not doing well at the moment, but overall, I think mantas are going to make it.
0: That's great. Well, this podcast is all about positivity and optimism. So I'm so happy that you brought that up. And I do just want to touch on one more thing before we wrap up. um, Because I always like to, you know, leave listeners with something that, you know, they feel like they can take part in. And we've already mentioned Manta Matcher and every podcast episode I have listeners, you know, you can always reach out to the guests that I have on the show, you know, connect with them online and you know send them questions thoughts ideas um, whatever so um, I'll definitely link to Andrea's you know all her stuff at the end when I post this podcast episode but um, another way that you can get involved is you can actually participate in one of Andrea's ray of hope expeditions where she takes people out in the field and you actually get to help her with her research on manta rays so can you talk a little bit about ray of hope expeditions and maybe the the upcoming one or two expeditions that you have going on. Um, sure. Again, that's
1: something that came very uh, opportunistically, and too because you know, as researchers, we're trying to get to you know these places on the uh, in the most remote and inhospitable places in the world, and chartering these big boats uh, and taking these really small teams over to try and accomplish some type of research goal. And it's very expensive and very tedious and um, hard to fund. And at the same time, I was getting all of these emails from people saying, we love what you do. We're really strong divers. You know, we want to come out and and help you. Is there any way that we can help you? And I was thinking like, not really, you know. And then I was like, wait, actually, um, you know, why can't why can't? I, you know, open the door to people who might not have a PhD, but who are really good, strong divers and that have a a willingness. Um, You know, we'll all charter the boat together and reduce a lot of the costs for the researchers uh, so that we can put more money into our tags or more money into our analyses or whatever. Um, And then we can bring, you know, people into the field to experience what it's like, you know, so many everywhere, I don't care if I'm in a grocery store, and I tell people what I do, they are, like, oh, I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Um, And so many people had these passions when they were younger that they might not have been able to fulfill. um, But that would love that once in a lifetime opportunity of feeling like what it feels like to go on expedition or go out into, the wilds and and do some science. And and I think people are starting to move away from just taking, you know, mindless holidays. And if they're going to take a break from work and spend any money, they want to do something where they can give back. And whether it's a Ray of Hope expedition or any type of expedition where someone is contributing to citizen science or some type of community service, I really encourage people, if you're looking for something you can do outside of just, you know, not using as many plastics or recycling and things think about the way that you travel, travel more sustainably, think about, you know, offering your services when you travel, you know, whether it's to teach English, or whether it's, to, it doesn't matter what it is. And in my case, it's, you know, please join me for an expedition, you can really help us to, to um, achieve higher quality research in more areas, um, more efficiently by joining us in expeditions. And so that's one of the things you could directly do for for MMF, if you're interested.
0: Yeah, so listeners, when I post this podcast episode, I will link to Marine Megafauna Foundation's website as well as the Ray of Hope Expeditions website. Um, I'll also link to Andrea's website, which is queenofmantas.com. And then I'll also link to her social channels on Facebook and Instagram. You can find her at Queen of Mantas because she is the queen of mantas. And uh, hopefully after listening to this podcast episode you can definitely understand why that is her nickname so to speak so andrea i want to thank you for all of the positive change that you are creating for the ocean and the manta rays and the marine megafauna around the world because you are definitely doing just that and i also want to thank you for being on the show today i really enjoyed talking with you
1: you're welcome i love what you do and i think you know education is the key and the more people that we can reach the better so thank you for doing what you do
0: You just heard Dr. Andrea Marshall, co-founder of Marine Megafauna Foundation and the queen of mantas. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at OceanAllison.com. And don't forget to check out Kraken Sports, high-quality scuba diving photo and video equipment, including my personal favorite, their universal smartphone dive housing. Learn more at KrakenSports.ca. And tune into next month's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.